Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They are the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave behind for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how we can work together to design a better world. Today, I'm delighted to introduce my next guest, Vanessa Garcia. Vanessa is a Cuban-American multidisciplinary writer, screenwriter, playwright, novelist, and journalist. She's the author of the novel, White Light, which won the International Latino Book Award and was one of NPR's best books of 2015. And her first picture book for children, What the Bread Says, was just released in October of 2022. Theatrically, her work has been produced around the world. She's the author of The Amparo Experience, a unique immersive theatrical performance that debuted in Miami to critical and popular acclaim. More recent plays include Sweet Goats and Blueberry Senoritas, which she co-wrote with Richard Blanco and Hashtag Graced. As a journalist, feature writer, and essayist, her pieces have appeared in the LA Times, the Huffington Post, the Guardian, the Washington Post, the Miami Herald, and numerous other publications. In addition to all of this, Vanessa also hosts a podcast about family with her own sister and mother called Never the Empty Nest, which is available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Welcome to On Cities, Vanessa. I am so happy to be speaking with you today. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Vanessa, on your website, you have the following quote by the Cuban nationalist and poet Jose Martí. Quote, a genuine man or woman goes to the roots. To be a radical is no more than that, to go to the roots. So Vanessa, how would you describe your roots? Well, my roots, I say immediately, the first thing I think of is Cuban. I have Cuban roots. Um, I, my parents, I'm the daughter of refugees from, from the island um, that came in different waves. Most of them came in the 60s, but my stepdad, who I'm very close to, came much later when he was 16 years old. Um, so that's, you know, th those are, those are, that's really where I come from. But I'm also American. I was born here. And so I have very American roots too. And uh, so I'm an American born Cuban. I, I like to say ABC. <laughs> Actually, um, you, you know, when I went in preparing for this conversation, I did quite a bit of research and I wanted to say something about that because in many instances, you describe yourself as an American born Cuban or an ABC. Yeah. Right. You, I don't know if you coined that term or not. I did not coin it. I think I popularized it in the sense that everybody um, thinks I did and I cannot take credit for it. Um, I read it once and, and there's also ABC American born Chinese. So it's kind of a spin off. Uh, American born Chinese 
taken to the Cubans. I want to say that the first time I read it, and I might be wrong, was uh, Gustavo Firmat. Um, but somewhere in in the literature, it, it appeared and it rang so true that I kept using it. And every time I describe myself, <clears throat> excuse me, I use it. So it, it became something connected. <laughs> yeah, because um, like you said, you were born in Miami, yeah. but the memory of a displaced homeland seems to fill your narratives. And I, I wanted to... Um, say something in july 2021 you wrote a piece that was entitled my pen echoes cuba's chant for freedom i am the bridge and i i just want to quote a little passage which i think is particularly beautiful and which describes some of what you're saying now um all my life i've belonged to the water to the space between two countries cuba and the united states that place, which on some maps is referred to as Miami, though the place I am referring to is more fluid still. I want to make sure I'm being clear. This is not some reference to a muddled or slippery hybrid identity. I'm not referring to the hyphen as a tug of war between cultures. I am not torn or confused. I embrace my cultural multiplicity and the ways in which it creates my singularity of purpose. I am an American-born Cuban writer, and my writing is a suspension bridge as it tells the story of my people. I think, I think this is a really just beautiful passage. Um, and it brought me to another piece that you wrote um, entitled Cuba from a Parking Lot <laughs> that in a way I think exemplifies what you write in this passage. Can you tell us a little bit about that piece? Yes, definitely. Um, so there's this parking lot in Miami, uh, very close to where my parents live. Uh, when I was growing up, it was called the Miracle Center. It's not that anymore, but it, it's, it's a building that has sort of this like winding driveway that takes you up and down. Actually, the, the actual driveway that takes you up and down this parking lot is really poorly built, but, but the, the parking lot has a view of Miami, a really nice view of Miami, particularly of the gables. You can see the gables. You can see parts of the grove. You can see like all the way to the Biltmore Hotel. You see the, the flamboyant trees and all of this sort of landscape. Um, and you also, you don't see a lot of skyscrapers. It's sort of all very low to the ground. You see a lot of green. And um, when my grandfather was on the verge of dementia, he was sort of in and out of it at, at that moment, that that sort of cusp where there's a lot of clarity still, but every once in a while there's a lapse. That was happening to my grandfather, who I spent a lot of time with. And we were going down the driveway and he, he turned to me and he looked out and he said, que linda es La Habana, que linda es La Habana. How beautiful is, is, is Havana? And he was looking out thinking that we were in Havana and I looked out and I was like, oh, my God. And by that time I had gone, you know, I had gone to Cuba and he was right. It looked so much specifically like El Vedado, you know, and and I think about it. I look at the trees at the at the even even that like flame of red that would, you know, canopy over some of the of the houses, even some of the um, the buildings, the Biltmore Hotel, which the architects had, you know, the the Sevilla Hotel in 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 Cuba, all of that is, it's just like this merger of, of place, of time and space that ha happens in that parking lot. So the, the novel that I'm writing right now, um, that I've been working on forever, 
um, I started it actually, it's not that long since in 2017, I, I, I started to write it and I'm really working on the revision right now, but every once in a while I go to that parking lot because it gives me a sort of infusion of, of that feeling of place of that feeling of actually we're in the same space or we inhabit the same space somehow. Um, it's crossed over and it's not just, it is the actual space and architecture, but it's also all of the memory infused into it that lets you see it a particular way. And I just think about being, you know, in El Vedado, in, in Cuba, looking out the window and taking a, a photo and saying, oh, this is also Miami. Yeah, it's it's um, beautiful how you describe it, because for those that are listening who might not be aware of what the Vedado is, the Vedado is essentially the garden city, mm-hmm. um, and it's the extension of the 18th and 19th uh, century city, where you actually see a more residential, detached fabric of buildings that is surrounded by a lusher landscape, a landscape that you don't see in the historic city center. And so when you talk about Mm -hmm. getting that elevated view over, let's say, the gables, coral gables, which is, again, another uh, one of the first American garden cities that is also developed at roughly the same time, so 1920s, it's beautiful the way you describe that relationship between the buildings and the landscape. Um, but you also describe the memory. So for yep. your grandfather, it's the kind of confluence of memory mm-hmm. um, that that comes with 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 growing up in a city. Yeah. And in a way, Miami and Havana are mm-hmm. inextricably linked. Yeah. And as you're saying that, something that that just, you know, happened to me in my mind as I saw, you know, like when you're saying an elevated view, this is also a city, Havana and Cuba, Cuban cities are also cities which a lot of people had to flee from. And the last memory in their mind is that elevated view from the plane, you know, leaving it, leaving, lifting off the ground and looking at it from that, you know, vantage point. And I feel like that is so ingrained in the memory of our parents and grandparents that when we of my generation are landing in Cuba, we kind of have this inherited memory that then translates in a new way, you know? So when you're looking down on the Island, you're also that it's just that bird's eye view. That's doing something when you said that right now, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting. Yeah. And actually just interesting that you mentioned in your description, let's say the Biltmore hotel again, Uh for our audience, you know, it's one of the, one of the few buildings that rises up above that landscape. And interestingly enough, the the architects of that building, Schultz and Weaver, were also the architects of the Hotel Nacional, which is one of the leading, you know, um, hotels in Havana. And so, so of course, much of what you're describing, you know, is a kind of synergy between the two cities. Um, actually, I think maybe maybe to to follow along these lines, and maybe we can't really stop talking about Havana when we're trying to describe Cuba, but from your perspective, since Miami is your, um, your birthplace, really, Mm -hmm. you could argue it's your city, although maybe you should speak to that. I I shouldn't say that for you. Can you describe um, Miami 
uh, from your perspective for our listeners? I mean, I definitely feel like Miami is my city. I definitely feel that Miami does feel like another planet sometimes, you know, Um, we have it sort of like in the, in the cultural ethos that it is this extension of Latin America. Right. And, but it's more than that. It really does feel, I always, I feel like right now it is this microcosm for what the United States is becoming in the sense of we have for a very long time been 50% something other than than you know just anglo-american or um and so for a very long time what that mixture means inside of a place is what miami is to me because it's not just um you know how people transport their homelands or don't and also the food and how that kind of makes its way into the tapestry of the culture and the city itself, um, how we get to those places, you know, and how you get to those places when you want to visit it from somewhere else, which I think is something that happens in Miami, you know, what's the closest I can get to, you know, Honduras or Cuba, if I'm, you know, in Georgia, right? Um, And it's just, it's, it's a city that is pulsing for me always with an enormous amount of vibrancy and and beauty uh, cultures. And, you know, it wasn't, I I feel like when I was a teenager growing up, I took that for granted because I just lived inside of it, you know, inside of the Miami bubble, which is what, what it feels like when you leave it. Um, And, you know, I realized when I went to New York city, when I was 18 years old, I was like, yeah, wow, this is a different, different America. You know, um, so that for me is is Miami. Miami is also, you know, the place where you land. I, and I just landed yesterday, the day before yesterday from L.A. And I get I get down on the I, I'm like coming down from the literally from the plane step foot. And I hear this uh, a worker that's right there on the on the in the plane, right on the cusp of the plane saying, um, no, porque, porque yo me, me compré dos empanadas por acá. But, you know, it's just like immediate Spanish and immediate, you just feel it right away. Um, and you're crossing that tarmac or whatever that, that bridge of, of from the plane is called. And you feel like you're going into this other space. You feel the warmth, you feel the heat. Um, I mean, yeah. I love Miami and it always pulls me back. It's a place of family and, and roots, yeah. which we started with. Yeah. Yes. Which yeah. takes us back to, yeah. I guess, the initial question and maybe is also a kind of way to segue specifically to speak about your creative work. Um, because again, you're a really a multidisciplinary artist. I mean, you work in so many mediums. Yeah. It's truly impressive. But maybe I'd like to ask you uh, the first question about the Amparo experience, mm-hmm. which is an immersive theatrical play for which you won the Ruth Foreman Award. Tell us about the story of Amparo. So the Amparo experience is, um, I say is because it sort of continues. It's like this Amparo universe. We sort of play with it like the the Marvel universe, you know, is the Amparo universe. Um, It has continued in different ways, but it started out uh, being this immersive theatrical experience about the family who created Havana Club Rum in Cuba from which uh, the brand was stolen or nationalized by the Cuban government in 1959. Uh, it follows the story of the actual family uh, leaving Cuba, having to escape Cuba, and carrying the thing that they couldn't take, which was the the recipe of the Havana Club rum. So the Cuban government, you know, took the brick and mortar, took everything, created a rum inside of those factories, labeled it Havana Club, uh, you know, with all of the work that that the the family, the Arechabalaza, had made it, um, had put into it. 
But Ramona Richawala, which is one of the central characters, is the central character, took the recipe out. And eventually, after a long, long, long battle, I mean, he had strokes, a heart attack, he lost a son. It was a very hard battle. He sold the recipe to Bacardi so that Bacardi could take on the fight of what essentially is the trademark of Havana Club rum. But I uh, wrote the story of the the couple at the center. So Ramona de Chavala was married uh, to Amparo. So Ramon has passed, but Amparo is still alive. And Amparo means refuge. It means shelter and protection. And you couldn't have a better name <laughs> for what this piece, you know, is about. Um, but the actual piece itself um, is an immersive experience. It had two pilot projects. At one point, we did it at Ball and Chain, which is this like, you know, r- restaurant, bar, club kind of thing on 8th Street, um, the center of Little Havana in Miami. It was invite only just to test it out. And then we did it in New York. And I say this because in New York, it was a vertical experience. And I'll talk about this in a little while. It was in a building, you know, that had three floors and the story changed. So The Amparo experience is an immersive experience that when it became the thing that you're talking about in Miami, there were 23 different ways of seeing the show. Um, You entered into the show from five different entry points and you followed a guide, but you could be divided even within each route. You would always receive what what we ended up calling the spinal cord of of the story. So you would always get the story, but it's like being at a party that if you're standing, you know, in the southwest corner the whole time, it's a very different experience than being on the stage or, you know, being in the kitchen or being. So every perspective, it was all about point of view and how you actually live through space, you know. Um, so from the two pilots, I essentially wrote a very different script for the very first pilot because it was a very circular space. Um, Ball and Chain has a big, you know, courtyard area in the back. And so the image was very circular in terms of structure and that that played a role in the narrative. And then in New York, it was very vertical. So I, I, I went deeper into character, interestingly, like into the souls of the character. So by the time we got to Miami and did it in a villa, with, which had two floors, it was a combination of those two things. So it was like the horizontal line merging with the vertical line of story, you know, going deep into the roots of character and allowing the characters to cross. This is, you know, very abstract sounding, right? But what would happen if you went into this house was that, you know, you bought a ticket and you followed a guide and that guide would take you into the portal of 1957 Cuba and you would go in into Club Nautico, which was where Ramon and Amparo met. And you would follow the story straight through when they get um, thrown out of Cuba in 1964. And then you get a little bit of, of what happened after um, in sort of a summary. So it was really like making people go through the revolution. I mean, I find I, I find your description of it um, really fascinating because what you're doing is you're describing how the obviously the story is a powerful one mm-hmm. to begin with, you know, and 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 the reason for for the entire experience to come to being. But because you staged it yeah. um, in a physical setting mm-hmm. that was not the traditional theater. Yeah, but we're actually spaces in the city. I'm I'm fascinated by the ways in which, let's say, a more static 
um, you, you described it as a circular space, but it's really one space, it's a mm-hmm. singular space. Yeah. The one at ball and at chain, ball and chain, the first one would influence the the way in which you structure the narrative, yeah. and even the way that that I, as a visitor, would have experienced that story. Yeah. And then how the vertical, which obviously in New York City, you don't have really the amount of land that you would have in yeah. a place like Miami, and so there's perhaps less space. It's a denser experience. So. Yep. One doesn't have the privilege of walking around, you know, to the degree that you might in a in a Miami interior. So Correct. therefore, you have to spend longer discussing or delving into the characters. And what would happen is that the characters cross each other. So you were constantly, I mean, as a writer, you're forced to to see what happens when two characters cross each other. Do you know what I mean? Because in in a circular space where there's a lot of space, these characters don't have to meet. But what happens when Amparo meets the dancer? You know what I mean? Like what happens when the 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 dancer at a club meets, you know, um, you know, someone from very like high society Cuba, right? And so what happens if that so all those crossings were actually incredibly fruitful to the narrative because you had to have them speak to each other and you had to have a reason for it. One of the things that was magical about this is that the director, I mean, initially, you know, I have like I had a script where I could see them talking to each other and I wrote it in columns, you know, like I wrote this thing in columns and not anyone can translate that into space. You know what I mean? So, you know, I could see it happening and then the director had to make it happen. You know, she had to make all these people cross and that's in a huge experiment of, of time and space and how you actually time out all of those things. And sometimes she would say, Vanessa, I know you that you thought in your little head that that was going to take six minutes, but it actually is taking three. And this other thing that you thought was going to take one second is taking five minutes. <laughs> so, Well, it's, it's fascinating yeah. because it's much more, um, you have, I don't want to say less control because mm-hmm. obviously it all needs to be coordinated, yeah. coordinated, but, but there are many more actors, not just those that are, you know, in the ex- play, right. let's say, but then everybody that's visiting. But yep. wait, when you were describing how you're writing the story in New York in a space that is denser, yes. how that changed the story. It's very much how, when we inhabit cities, when yes. we inhabit denser cities, our ability to cross multiple people uh-huh. in, in a much more, in a much easier way um, is evident as opposed to, let's say, living in far less dense environments where sometimes you could spend maybe even weeks and not see anyone. So I think, you know, your the way you you describe that confluence between storytelling and space, I think is really powerful. And I was curious, since your last venue mm-hmm. was the one that at least in Miami was uh, sort of, you know, took on, it became a kind of cult yeah. happening almost in the city. <laughs> Did you choose that villa um, for particular reasons, like, or did you just, did you happen upon the villa and then once again have to kind of manipulate the storyline to the space? So the story of finding space uh, is not, you know, a singular one. No theatrical production is of one person, right? So these are always collaborative efforts. And in this particular case, there was um, a uh, uh, one of the people who worked with the marketing company, which was Team Enterprises. There were two people who were were crucial, which is Paul Ramirez and Michael Sheehan. Michael Sheehan, who also was with Bacardi, he found this house. But before that, we were looking at, you know, um, like old garages, like for example, mechanic garages, because Ramon had been a mechanic in 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 uh, in, in refuge as a refugee in Miami. Um, but when we saw this house, he was like, he was like, look, 
look, I want to show you this house. I want to show you this house. This was to me and Victoria Collado, the director. We go to the house and I had my son with me and Vicky, who's um, the director, she was carrying my son and I took a picture and there was this tile floor on the outside that um, is Spanish tile that is also exists in Cuba. I take a picture and I send it to someone and they, they were like, are you in Cuba? When did you go to Cuba? When you took your son to Cuba? And we were both like this house, <laughs> you know, like, because you were in that space. And again, it felt like, and it, because I don't know what year it was built. I'm a, I don't know if it was 1930s or ni- I think it was the thirties, but because of the way it was built and the, the, even just the, like the, the palm trees and the actual later we played with it and we hired, um, they hired uh, a, a landscape designers that brought plants that would only uh, be like flourish in Cuba, like on Cuban soil. So like everything we played with the feeling that you were in this house that felt very much of this other place. You were also going into this house that was in Miami and you were being transported into a portal. So it made perfect sense that once you cross this arc, you know, that you are now in this other time and space, you know? Um, so that's what essentially, when I think of like what solidified that space for both myself and the director after being pitched a million, you know, spaces. And of course, it wasn't just our decision. This is a, a, a big decision of many people. Um, it was that picture where I I sent it and they thought that my, yeah, I had taken my son to Cuba. <laughs> I was like, well, in a sense, <laughs> So when you when you describe the Amparo universe, mm-hmm. uh, is there will there be a next chapter to that story in another space coming soon? So we just tried uh, another pilot of something, um, which was a food experience that also takes you through space, but we built it out, um, and you are given a five course meal essentially as you are moving through the story. And it's definitely not dinner theater. So it's sort of like removing that idea from the mind and thinking of what does something like both food, music, architecture, space, what does that do to us? And for me, it's that same idea of those things move vertically through us in the sense that they pinpoint memory in a very particular way. Um, in a very different way than horizontal storytelling, you know, which is, which is following, you can follow a story, but what happens when you add food and all of a sudden you have what I call that ratatouille moment at the end, you know, of the Disney movie where the critic is like completely tunneled back into his, you know, mother's kitchen eating ratatouille, you know, um, made by a rat in, in, in the Disney version, but, but in, it's that tunneling feeling that can happen, you know, whether you're at the top of a parking lot or whether you're eating a very specific recipe, you know, or an ingredient that's doing something to to your internal being, you know. Yeah, when I when I hear your response, I see how how really how interested you are in the immersive experience. Yeah. I, I think that says a lot about the curiosity of your mind mm-hmm. and also, you know, the fact that you you weave together, you know, of course, in your in the in your theater, because we'll, when we return, yeah, um, we're going to talk more about uh, the novels and uh, and your other kind of creative mediums. But at least in the theater 
work. You're really interested in obviously the story, yeah. but really everything else, um, you know, the physical environment. And now I'm interested in learning more about this food experience, but maybe this would be a good time to take a short break. We're going to take a break. I'm speaking with uh, the fantastic Vanessa Garcia. And when we return, she's going to continue to speak to us about the relationship of stories and the immersive environments that she creates. So don't miss it. Um, please tune in in just a few minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod, examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back to On Cities. I'm joined by um, Vanessa Garcia, the multidisciplinary um, artist, writer, playwright. And prior to the break, we were talking about the creation of a series of immersive experiences that she's produced in her theatrical work. Um, but I think I'd like to delve into some of the other um, creative mediums. And uh, in preparing for this conversation, I read that you watched the fall of the Berlin Berlin Wall from your fifth grade classroom in Miami, and that this was a profound experience that manifested itself years later in a unique audio play. Mm -hmm. So another format for the play um, entitled 
Ich bin ein Berliner. Yes. I'm sure I did a disservice to that title, but nevertheless, how did this audio play come to be? So I had always wanted to, I was, I'm obsessed with the Berlin wall. Like I'm literally obsessed. Anybody who knows me knows that every once in a while I'm just talking about the Berlin wall <laughs> and it's because of this very formative moment um, when I was a young girl in school watching we were, you know, watching channel one or whatever the channel is in, in your classroom that they put on when something is happening um, in the news and the Berlin wall was coming down and I had an emotional reaction. I was just extremely emotional about it. I started crying. I was very like when you're just extremely moved and you don't really understand at that moment in time. So I kind of spent the rest of my life until the writing of this play trying to figure out why that did that to me and what the connect, like what the connections were. I mean, obviously you know, it's linked to Cuba in so many ways. So I think that, um, you know, the Berlin wall came crashing down and it opened up a world um, for so many people, you know, like in the Eastern Bloc, the, the wall came down and there was um, this promise of, of of freedom in so many ways. And that never happened for Cuba. The wall remained the sort of ocean in between, right? Um, and so the play grapples with all of that. And I think it goes back to this idea of like living in the water in between and what that actually means in between Cuba and the United States. Um, but yeah, that's that's where where that entire thing came from. Ich bin ein Berliner is what... Um, JFK, what Kennedy said, uh, standing in the middle of West Berlin um, to to the audience that was listening to him as uh, we are all Berliners. And so I feel like as a Cuban, I am also a Berliner. But that idea of that, like where that wall is, it you know, stands divided, you know, this particular place. But but um, it just, you know, exemplified a moment in time. And um, I run into that wall everywhere I go. I was, where was I the other day? Oh my God. I don't even remember where I go anymore. Um, Maine. I was in Maine, in Portland, Maine. And I was going down the port and I look over and I'm like, oh my God, there's a piece of the Berlin Wall. So they're one of the the few states that actually have a piece of the wall. So do we in Miami by oh. Miami-Dade College. We really? have a piece of the wall. Yes, I don't I never know why. That. I don't know why this wall follows me, <laughs> but I swear it is something that I had to piece together. So it was like piecing together the broken pieces of this wall. It really did feel like that. And in order to bring it back down again, you know, so yeah, that was an exploration. And it came about because um, I had pitched this idea to a theater, um, FAU Theater Lab, and here in, in Boca Raton in, in Florida. And Matt Stabile, who was the um, art, who is the artistic director, the wonderful artistic director of that theater, he who was very interested in it. We did these emails back and forth, um, and we just kept talking, you know, about it. And then when the pandemic hit, he said, "You know, Vanessa, I'm gonna commission some radio plays, um, and I want you to do one." And then I said, oh, what about that Berlin Wall idea? He said, I was hoping you would say that. So that's how that became a radio play um, or an audio play. And in addition, it also had a visual supplement. Like it had um, an illustrator who added some visuals to it uh, that were really lovely. So it became this presentation and it was the first, um, one of the first shows that people went to in uh, 2021 when the 
you know, like when you were allowed to sort of have uh, things outside. And so everybody sat outside and there was a screen and there was live music being played and the audio play also, also playing. We also streamed it, but it felt like, you know, there also needed community in a way, like the piece also needed community. So they decided to do that. And it just so happened that it was um, the day of the premiere I am driving my grandfather, the same grandfather who saw Kiba from the parking lot, um, was on his deathbed. And we had been with him for 20 days without food and water. And this was premiering. And I was like, I don't know. My mother said, just go, go. And as I'm going, I get the news that my grandfather passed as I'm driving to to the premiere. And when we got there and I told, you know, I told Matt, who knew what, you know, what an important person my grandfather was in my life. And he was actually, his voice is in the play, is in the audio play. Um, Your grandfather's voice. My grandfather's voice is in it. His actual voice, which I had recorded talking about, um, you know, wanting to go to Cuba, like, hey, are we going to go to Cuba right now? Let's, you know, put your things, put your, yeah, pack up, mama, mama, junto. Let's go, let's go. Um because every once in a while I would quote unquote travel to Cuba with him in his dementia. You know, like we would just go in our in his in his mind and therefore mine mine, <laughs> you know, together from Miami. Um so the piece was playing, and there was this one moment right when he was speaking from within the audio play that it started to rain a little bit and then it stopped completely. It was like a little sprinkle and then it stopped. And so, of course, you know, I don't know, I, I believe in magic and I believe in those things. And so so does a, so do a lot of people in the theater. So all of us just kind of <laughs> looked at each other like, you know, there was a, a presence of that in the in the I don't want to say garden because it was a giant lawn. <laughs> it was, but, you know, in the green. Yeah, yeah it was. A, it was. I mean, that's a very powerful um, experience yeah. and i think it speaks to obviously a very personal one yeah in your case but also i think it's a test to the power of the arts to mm. move the spirit yeah and how important they are in building community yes and i was i was struck because i was actually going to ask you as you were describing it mm-hmm. um how did the you know we prior to the break we were talking about the importance of the of the physical space in the writing of the story. Mm -hmm. And here it's an audio play where initially there was no space. And I was curious to know if the fact that it was audio changed the way you told the story. Mm -hmm. But then I was struck by the fact that you decided to again, engage the city um, because there, the power of the theater or the play is our ability to congregate together and see, or in this case, hear something. So, um, I did was it was did you write it strictly to be heard and then it, it was translated to this kind of physical environment and then if you could say a few words for those who mm-hmm. haven't had the opportunity to listen to the play yeah. um just uh, what the narrative mm-hmm. the actual story so the actual story of it is I'll start there which is um <clears throat> it follows me in my fifth grade classroom seeing the Berlin Wall come down and like this you know this little girl running out of the room crying and not understanding and not getting it. And then the, there's, there's a narrative voice, a narrator's voice, which is mine. I was actually narrating it literally. 
Um, and so, you know, I was like the quote unquote, the actor, there were other actors, but I was the narrative voice, um, saying, you know, like, why did I do that? What happened to me in that moment? And the whole narrative sort of unfolds in me trying to figure that out. Um, going to Cuba with my mother, figuring out eventually that what that was all about was that, um, that Berlin wall, um, was a symbol of, you know, I, I go into this whole history on, you know, the Soviet Union, Cuba. Um, and, and I end up sort of asking the regime to knock down the wall between Cuba and the rest of the world. Um, I feel like, you know, that, I mean, like Reagan did, as, you know, tear down the, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's sort of like, I was asking for that to happen. Um, I feel like a lot of times um, Cuban Americans are kind of like the, that voice is taken from them. Like you're not allowed to say those things anymore because you're not on the island. But I felt very much like I could say that. Um, and so that's what that play is about. Um, and it is, you know, it's about it's about a wall, <laughs> figurative and literal, you know, uh, that exists between an entire nation and the rest of the world. And I think that a lot of times... Um, you know, that in, there's this way that Cuba is read, um, that that belong, that that's there because of an embargo, but actually there's a regime on the inside that doesn't let people out, you know? Um, but, um, so that's what it's about. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it speaks to, um, I mean, its power speaks to some of the timeless, uh, you know, kind of timeless themes. Yeah. You know, the search for freedom. Yes. Um, the the inability to, you know, have a voice essentially. So right. you you many obviously mm -hmm. those that are living in oppressive regimes today, yep. Cuba being one of them. You know, yep. they don't have a voice. Correct. So so back to what we were talking about in the beginning. In a way, your work as a as a writer as a playwright can oftentimes give a voice to those who don't have a voice mm -hmm. oh, and and amplify right because sometimes because i'm cuban american and i can speak directly to a cuban on the island that is not often heard in the mainstream um <clears throat> i can sort of repeat <laughs> what what is being felt from the inside and it definitely feels like you as an artist you're making all of this work in a free environment in an environment where you can say whatever you want and nothing is going to happen to you. Um, and there's, you're talking about a place in which people can't do that, which is in Cuba, people cannot just make art freely. Um, so that I think is very, very important to me. Um, but it, it was definitely, I also loved the idea. This is so going back to the question of whether it was made as an audio play, like just, um, with audio in mind, it was. And one of the things, apart from the logistical elements, like again, theater is a collaborative experience and it's not all about you. It really isn't. You know, there's, you know, the the theater itself was the theater that said, let's do it outside, you know? And I was like, yes, that's amazing. But um, it doesn't ever just come from one person. It's sort of like an and, 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 and you start building a thing. Um, but one of the amazing, beautiful things about this being audio is that audio is one of those things that can cross over walls. So it can literally, as it has, you can transmit radio to Cuba 
And that was always something that was fascinating in terms of Radio Mambi and all these places from Miami that were transmitting onto the island. And it's such a soulful thing, a soulful conversation in air, you know, between these two places, the Cubans of the diaspora and the people that are, you know, trapped inside the island, um, that you could do that. It was, it's, it's like subversive. I mean, it's this idea of, of going to the roots being radical. Right. Like, how do I get to the most pure sense of, of us, you know, which is this communication thread, which is invisible, you know, but you can't take that just like, again, you can't take that recipe from Ramon in what we were talking about before. You cannot take this thread between these people who this wall wants to divide, but it's not going to, you know, against all odds, I feel, you know. Um, is it more complicated? Yes. And are we still fighting the same fight? Yes. But that's, you know, that it felt so true to me for it to be audio, um, at least in its first, you know, iteration of whatever, you know, this thing will be, um, that it, it felt right. You know, it's, we share a history as, um, you know, being first generation mm -hmm. American as well, born in New York, you know, of Cuban parents. Yeah. Um, and your narrative reminded me of uh, uh, being a young child in my grandparents' kitchen and mm -hmm. my grandmother sitting there listening to radio, the radio yeah. oftentimes connecting to what was happening in Cuba. Yeah. Um, and that being a very powerful medium that if I can close my eyes right now, I can see her yeah. um, listening to it. So you're absolutely right. Um, I think, again, if, if, you know, we've talked about your work as a playwright and certainly, um, you know, both in, in, in a physical setting and then the audio play, but you're also an author. Mm -hmm. Um, a journalist uh, and, and and an artist, um, and so as a creative professional, uh, but specifically writers, they seem to have rituals for the ways in which they structure their days. You know, you wrote a, a phenomenal uh, book, the White Light, that won the first prize at the International Latino Book Awards, um, and I read that you do your best writing in the early morning and in cafes throughout the city. Is that still the case? So. Writing is a dynamic thing, you know, and like it changes, it changes with your life, right? Um, the thing is, I, I am a writer. I write always and everywhere. Um, I write the best in the mornings um, when no one is awake. Something happens in that space where it's still very, very quiet in your house and you have slept, whether a little or a lot, <laughs> but you have some rest in you. And for me, that time of morning is the best. Uh, I used to wake up, you know, five, six in the morning and write until around nine. And, you know, that's when, you know, your emails start coming in, your phone starts ringing and all this. Um, now, because I have kids, my day starts a lot earlier. I have to, my day, you know, for, for you know, parents, you have to get your kids to school, you have to get the, everything packed. And so I sometimes wake up at three in the morning because that's the only time that's really quiet. 7 a.m. is no longer quiet in my house. Sometimes 6 a.m. is not quiet. Sometimes it's 5 a.m. and I get a little, little pitter-patter of feet who hears me in the living room and comes over, you know? So the rituals have changed because of life, you know? So I will wake up, you know, if I if I'm meeting a deadline or if I'm like, oh, I really been thinking about something a lot and I need to get it down. I will wake up very, very early and I'll set my alarm to do it. And, and then I'll also go like during the day, you know, while you have that middle, middle chunk of the day, I do still write in, in cafes and different places because I tend to write and then want to change space. 
place and you know sound of what's around so it changes the default mechanisms in the writing because you're in a new environment so i will and the, i like the buzz of of people around me it doesn't bother me i cannot listen to music like for real listen to music because i just go with the music and the narrative of the music but that kind of cafe environment is very i i don't know it's it's warm <laughs> to me so I, I go different different places. So I'll be writing for a couple of hours or sometimes an hour and a half. And then I just switch and I'll go to a different place and I jump around and I have like, usually it's like a set of staples for a period of time. And then I change those. Um, Do you have a favorite that you can share in the city? Well, it's funny. We, we've met at what, like at one of them, Cafe de Metro, I love, but I, that I have, there's a, there's a little new place that I've been going to called, I think it's called Magondo after the um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez after a uh, hundred years of solitude. It's a Colombian place and it's in the Gables. Um, I also I have, there's also little like Cuban spots that are like, we used to go a lot to um, when we were working at Ball and Change, I used to go to Exquisito, which they hated because they were like, this is not a Starbucks, but now they're getting used to it. <laughs> um I yes, think you wrote places. most of White Light, which um, I think uh, again is is the novel that um, that sets Veronica, the main character, who's an artist, and you know, sort of her struggle with both identi- finding her own identity identity as mm-hmm. an artist, but also grieving the loss of her Cuban immigrant father. But I read that you wrote most of that at Books and Books, or a lot of it at Books and Books. So that, and while I wrote a lot of that in the mornings, I was living in Miami Beach at the time. Um, I, I mean, Books and Books is great. Now they have Wi-Fi, but when, <laughs> at, for a while they didn't have Wi-Fi, which you know is on purpose. Um, I think for a while, and they had the cafe and the whole thing. And I've, I've definitely written there, but because I run into so many people there. <laughs> oh, true, true. I see. There's going to be a bit of incognito. It, you know what? But but Books and Books for me, for anyone who you know is ever wants to come to Miami and is listening to this, Books and Books is the literary hub of this city. And speaking of community and what the arts does and what Mitchell Kaplan, which is the owner, has done to this community through that bookstore is a magical thing. I was there last night and I was there with a group of writers and we were workshopping a thing. Uh, there was music playing by Ola Hai, who actually ended up writing a song for Ich bin ein Berliner. So talk about the fabric of the world just like all comes together. Um, and it was, it's pure community. It was it was jumping with life, you know, and then we went, we heard a reading right after um, of young playwrights who are, who are um, starting out mixed with others that are, you know, older and um, short. So there were shorts anyway. Um, so I tend to see people there and it feels like a salon, yeah. you know, like it's just like a constant conversation. You've been to people. Um, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, yeah. it's a shout out to Mitchell Kaplan and so, also to independent bookstores, important independent yeah. books stores all over um you know really the country and how you know if we believe in the community that they create and i think yep. you're absolutely right to talk about the community that mitchell and books and books um are then we need to support them yes you know by being able to make them continued centers of cultural activities so i yep. I, I couldn't agree with you more i will also add one thing that um when uh i saw it I, my first job was at books and books when it was like this tiny corner shop but um Mitchell Kaplan I was 18 years old and I had taken a semester off of college 
And um, I said, I'm going to write a novel. And of course I did, but it's in a drawer, thank God. But, um, you know, I went and I remember him interviewing and he gave me the job right away. And it was, again, it's just this sense of incubating arts and community and writers. So it's a long history and yes, it's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, We're coming to sort of the end of the interview, but uh, I wanted to see if you wanted to say a few things about um, some recent and any recent projects or, uh, you know, what maybe what you're writing right now or, mm -hmm. or. So right now I am working on, it feels like so many things at the same time, um, but one after the other. So I just um, finished uh, the world premiere of a play called um, uh, Sweet Goats and Blueberries Senoritas with uh, Richard Blanco. We wrote it together and it uh, premiered in Portland, Maine and is about a uh, Cuban American baker uh, in Maine who but but it's also that's also about a found family and what that means so she has an estranged relationship with her mother um and uh some well i won't tell you what happens in the play but uh it is about food and community also so there's a link here um will it be traveling to other sites beyond maine hopefully okay. a lot of people have asked for the play after it went up it went up it had some good reviews and it was um they did a streaming for for a bit after and a lot of people saw it in that way and then we've gotten a lot of requests for the script so hopefully hopefully it does i hope so um and then I have a play coming up right now in May at a Zoetic Stage um, in the Arch Center, and it's called Hashtag Graced, and um, I call it the the road trip road trip play. <laughs> so it's about what it means to be an American right now, um, following this young woman. So we have about two minutes left, or maybe a minute, if you can answer. I'm asking all of my guests, what's your favorite city, Vanessa, and why? I, I have to say that I love Miami. I really do with all my heart. Um, I, I, I just, this is my city and that's my favorite. If I had to say a second, it would be LA. Um, it does, it has some kind of connective tissue. I think <laughs> you sort of feel it. Um, but there's this wonderful West coast vibe that just has t total tranquility for me. Well, I uh, I think you've spoken a lot about Miami and really been an advocate for a city that I love as well. So thank you so much, Vanessa. Thank you for all the work that you do, for the spirit that you bring to your work. Um, uh, I think it makes us all better uh, for it. And also join us next week um, where I'll be speaking to Kathy Left, the director of the Innovative Bakehouse Art Complex, where she will share how cities can build strong and sustainable ecosystems for artists and the arts to thrive. If you found the conversation interesting, please follow us on the On Cities uh, podcast and Instagram and listen to us on Spotify, Apple iTunes, or any other place that you get your podcast. Thanks again, Vanessa, for your wonderful work. Thank you. It's yeah. been wonderful. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 